Thank you, Tony. It's Pastor Tony. It's so good to be back with you. I love November because it means I get to come and see a bunch of familiar faces. Um, bring greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus from Manhattan Presbyterian Church, your sister congregation, and Pastor Brian Huff. He said, send my greetings to you all this morning. So greetings from Pastor Brian. It's, uh, I'm thankful to be here this morning because it's, it allows me the opportunity in part to tell you thank you for your support of our ministry. Uh, many of you give to what we're doing, and I'm thankful for your partnership, and I'm especially thankful for your prayers. In the midst of what is by far the strangest of our eight years on campus, um, this year being the strangest, um, it's, it's actually been a really great year. Um, the Lord has been gracious to allow us to continue to meet on campus in this pandemic, to continue to serve students with the gospel, um, to have things going on. And to see a lot of new faces this fall, uh, most weeks we see somebody new drop by, and we're really thankful for that. So the Lord is indeed at work, even now. And I want you to hear me say very clearly, it's because y'all are praying with us and for us that the Spirit is at work, and so I'm grateful for that. This morning I want to turn our attention to First Peter chapter 5. We're going to consider the first five verses of First Peter chapter 5. If the Bible is a, maybe a, a different book for you or a strange book to you, it's near the end of the Bible. The text that we're going to consider this morning is also printed in your bulletin, I believe, and it's to its fullest. As we turn to this text this morning, I want to take just a moment to orient us a little bit to, to how this text, what this text is and what's, what's happening in this letter. Like much of the New Testament, First Peter is a letter written to a, a gathering of Christians. Uh, in this case, it's written by Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, formerly a fisherman called from that by Jesus himself to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, and to become a fisher of men. And he indeed did that. It's, it's written to, to who he calls exiles, those not living at a place that is familiar, but those separate, cast and dispersed um, in parts of the Roman Empire that may have not been familiar to them. We know that um, he's writing to people who are suffering or indeed will suffer um, at the hands of the government, at the hands of their neighbors, um, at the hands of others because they are followers of Jesus. He uses that word exile intentionally in verse 1 of chapter 1. The, the idea of being an exile is someone living in a place that is unfamiliar to them, cast out of, of home, cast out of a place that is familiar. Philosopher Charles Taylor describes the feeling of exile as a place of distance, a place of absence, a, a seemingly irremediable capacity ever to reach this place, an absence of power, a confusion. In some ways, we understand that these days, don't we? We understand the confusion of things being different, things in many ways not being familiar anymore, and it's hard. It's hard to feel displaced in this, in, for many of us in this place that, that we call home and that is so familiar, we thought was familiar to us. And yet we're living in this challenge of feeling very different and very, very distant from what is home. And it's in the midst of that, that that Peter writes acknowledging that the suffering that you experience now for following Jesus where you are is expected because it's a part of following Jesus. He says over and over again, Jesus suffered and you will too. And yet right beside that, he is so quick to lay out the hope that we have in Jesus because Jesus lived, died, and rose again. We indeed, even as we suffer, are a people with lasting hope because that hope is unfading. It's imperishable, he says. It will not ever go away, and one day it will be fulfilled. And in the midst of this, he writes over and over again about what it looks like for us to live in that place where we feel like we're exiles, where we see suffering, and yet we live with hope. 
In fact, at the end of verse four, chapter 4, right before our passage this morning, he writes this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You hear the realities there that he's talking about, that we are suffering, and yet even our suffering, even the pain that we feel is not outside of the sovereign will of our loving and gracious God. And in the midst of that, he calls us to hope and he calls us to do good and to pursue lives of serving those around us. And so we get to this place in chapter 5 and we want to ask, how? How do we do that? The answer that I want to consider this morning from chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, is this. The answer is we do it as a, part, as a church. We do it gathered as the people of God in the name of Jesus. So let me read to us now this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for selfish, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we consider these things together. Gracious and merciful God, we bring to you our feeling of confusion and frustration. We bring to you our fears and our doubts. And we bring to you our joys and our excitements and the things that we are genuinely thankful for. In all of this, We ask that by your spirit we would consider this your word this morning. Would you send out your light and your truth? Would they lead us and guide us and take us to the place where you are that we might see you more clearly and in knowing you that we might be changed? Father, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. There are two key things that I heard earlier in my life, roughly 20-some years ago, that have stuck with me as we think about this thought of living as the church of God in this unique time and in these unique days. The, The first comes from actually my high school English teacher. This was a public school setting. My teacher was not a professed Christian as far as I know. But I remember one time in American Lit, my junior year, him saying these words to our whole class. He said, sometime I want you to go to church, not because you have to, but because you want to. His challenge was for us to consider doing it, taking a step of intentionality towards understanding what faith is and living in such a way that we, we would tr- at least try it out to consider what it would look like. So many of us had grown up in going to church because we were supposed to or because we were dragged there or some variation on that theme. And he knew that, and he knew that it would be a different experience if, if we actually were intentional about choosing to be there. The second statement comes from uh, actually my college advisor. I was a math education major. And he told me these words as I walked into his office uh, one fateful day to tell him that I was not going to be pursuing a a teaching job, but that I was heading to seminary, that God, I believe God was calling me into ministry, and I I felt the need to explore that. And Dr. Hill, who was a gracious man, he's a faithful churchman, took off his glasses as he was in the habit of doing and he just kind of leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, John, I want to tell you something as you think about this. 
He said, the church doesn't need you to be a good Rotarian. And what he was saying to me was, not that there's anything wrong with the Rotary Club, of course, but what he was saying to me was, he's saying, John, the church doesn't need you to just be a nice guy, to, to get people to like you, to smile and nod, to pat them on the head, and just give them kind words. The church needs you to be something different. I think he was implying And I would add this morning, because the church itself is something different. You see, both of those statements highlight for me the reality that this thing that we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, we're not a social club. We don't do this because some, some time ago somebody had this idea and said, you know what I think we should do? I think we should get together on Sunday mornings and maybe Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings and other times throughout the week. And that this is what we should do. No. We do this because there's something unique about gathering as the people of God because God has called us to this place. Uh, you may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in, the, in Germany in the early 1900s. And as the Nazi party began to take shape and began to, to, to rise to power, even, in, even as early as the, the 1920s and the early 30s, Bonhoeffer was well aware of what was going on because he heard the rhetoric and he saw the propaganda and he saw the Nazi party even manipulate the, the ministry and the leadership of the state church. And he knew something had to be done because the very truth of the gospel was at stake. And so what he did, one of the things that he and, and friends did was that they gathered young men in a, in a seminary that was an underground seminary. And they lived in community together and they studied the word to prepare these men to go out into a world that was very much opposed to the truth of the gospel message. And in the midst of this, he wrote the book Life Together, which is his reflection on Christian community that came out of living in community in this underground kind of setting. And and one of the more profound thoughts that, that shows up in that book, early on he writes these words. He said, every human wish or dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself, becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's easy to approach church so in love with our dream of the perfect community. Community is a buzzword with young people if you're not aware of that. We hear it all the time. We, we long for that. We long for this place to belong, this place to be. And so we have dreams and visions of what the perfect church would be. And Bonhoeffer says to us, if you cling to your dreams, you're going to destroy the community because it'll never work out. Again, because there's something unique and not man-made and not man-formed about what we do when we gather as the church of God and where our commitments lie. It's so easy to see church as simply the thing that we show up for, that we tune into. We shop for the perfect place for our families. And of course, there's wisdom in finding a place for you, for you and your family to worship. But when we treat it like a, like a consumer experience, we're missing something altogether. And it's what Peter is calling us to, what Peter is calling us to in 1 Peter 5 is to step out of that to step away from those, any of those notions, to see the church as something greater. How do, how do I know that? Look at verse 5. Notice what he says there. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, on, on first reading, it sounds like he's saying, young people, listen to your elders. 
Listen to the people that are older than you, maybe have some gray hair, maybe have a few more kids than you do, maybe have a bit more life experience. And, and certainly that's part of what he's saying here. But, but it's actually more than that. When, when he says those who are younger, subject yourselves to the elders, be subject to the elders, and in verse 1 he uses that same right word, the elders, he's actually speaking about the life together in the church. Because in the New Testament when we see this word elders or the phrase the elders, what it's speaking about is those calls, men who are called specifically to lead the people of God. And so as the gospel spread out in the book of Acts, what we see is we see the apostles appointing elders to lead the people of God. And so Peter says to those who are younger, to those who are not elders, he says, be subject to the elders. The most simple way I can say it is what he's he's telling us this morning is go to church. He's telling us to commit ourselves to living under the leadership of a local expression of Jesus' body of Jesus' church, of the gathering of God's people, to commit ourselves there. That's how we learn to live together in a world that's going to lead us to suffering. What I want us to wrestle with this morning is the follow-up question. Why does it work that way? And as we answer, answer that question, what I hope to be able to do for us as well is to consider then, if, if, if this is what we're called to do, let's talk about why, and let's let the why shape how we do this in real life, in real ways. Where we begin in verse 1, I want you to simply see this. We go to church because the gospel is indeed true. Notice how, where, where Peter begins. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's speaking from his own experience. He was a leader in the church of God. He was one of the 12 who was with Jesus literally with Jesus for the better part of three years. And Jesus continued to be with him even after he ascended into heaven by his spirit as Peter went out and began to proclaim with great boldness the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The foundation of our life together as a church, though, is is what he's saying here, and that is that the gospel is indeed true. Notice what goes into this. Notice that he he speaks of himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You see, embedded in the gospel story, inherent in the message about Jesus, is the reality of his suffering. We can't honestly talk about Jesus or faithfully talk about him without considering that he suffered. Peter was fully aware of this because he was there, even as he cowered in the darkness, as he waited during Jesus' trial and sat there, and more than once someone came to him and said, aren't you, weren't, aren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? Aren't you with the, the, the man who's being who's being questioned now, and he refused. He said, no, no. Even as he did this, he was aware of what was happening inside that building and what would happen the next day. He was deeply aware. He probably is also, as calling himself a witness here, he's also probably saying that he himself experienced, because we know from, from the book of Acts, that as the message went out, went out, Peter was jailed and he was beaten and he was threatened. And this happened over and over and over again. Suffering is a part of the gospel story. But notice where he goes next in the last part of chapter of verse 1. He says, as well as, a, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You see, the gospel message is not just a message that says life will be difficult. But it continues on to say there is glory to be revealed. There is beauty, there is truth, there is goodness. This off, the message of the gospel offers the fullest picture of what life could be. 
and invites us to imagine what that will be in all eternity. This is the good news. Because Jesus lived, because he suffered and died, and because he rose again, we can have life and we can be partakers of the glory that awaits us. Because indeed there is something that awaits us that the the greatest time in your life here and now will pale in comparison to what what, what is to come when Jesus returns. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but now I want you to hear. We go to church because the gospel is true, and it's this message that drives us there. Recently, I heard an interview with, with author Ben Fritz, who wrote a book called, I think it's called The Big Picture, and, and he's articulating how the movie industry has changed in the last decade, in particular with regard to the Marvel movie franchise. If you're familiar, these are comic book heroes from the you know, last five or six decades of of comic book writing, but they've been turned into 20-something movies. I think we're at 23 movies. And it's fascinating to think about how they got to this place and have been such a part of our culture and such a part of our world. You see, Marvel was wrestling with bankruptcy and actually had offered to Sony all the rights to all their characters. And Sony said, no, we're not interested. And so Marvel figured out a way to begin to produce movies a little bit on the cheap. They're still crazy expensive. But what Marvel began to do was they said, we're going to sell not an actor, but we're going to sell a story to to these people. We're going to do it in the form of these movies that will be interconnected. And we're going to create this vast universe that will blow the imaginations away and will be fascinating and people will get into it and want to watch all this and we'll make more money than we know what to do with. And so what they did for the first movie, for Iron Man in particular, they found an actor, Robert Downey Jr., who was having some life issues. So much so that people didn't want to hire him. So he was going to be cheap. And they found a director who was not a big-name director. You see, instead of taking Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise or Julia Roberts, these people that sell movies simply by their name, they took people that wouldn't do that because they wanted to sell more than just an actor. They wanted to sell a story. And it worked. And so they they added other actors who were not well-known or or just getting on the scene. And it it went crazy. It's blown up. It's it's lasted more than 10 years, I think. And it's it's amazing to see what's happened. It was more than just the individuals. They were taking a story and putting that front and center. How much more so is the gospel that story that shapes your life and my life? It's it, Because it's not made up, it's true, it's real. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, flesh and blood on the earth, now sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty in heaven. It's amazing to consider. To my students, as we I preached this text a few weeks ago, what I said to them was, and, and, and what, what my, part of my goal in, in approaching this text with them was I wanted them to think about where they go to church and how they think about church. And so I said to them at that point that I want them to go to a church where the gospel is preached in its fullness, where the Bible is seen as not merely a book of good ideas or impressions, but but something that is true, that is the Word of God. And I encourage them to wrestle with it, with finding a place where suffering is talked about and where glory is talked about, where the fullness of the message is proclaimed. Redeemer is that place. I know that because I know your elders and I know you all. And so I'm not saying to you, find a place that does that because here's a place that does that. But what I want to say to you this morning is when you come to church, expect the gospel to be preached in its fullness. And at times that will mean your pastors and elders will need to say difficult things to you. 
that may confuse you, that may frustrate you, that may get under your skin. But listen, listen for the suffering of Jesus. When they have to challenge you, know that difficult words may come, but know that that's not the, that's not the end of the story. Your elders don't want to micromanage your lives. Trust me, they don't. They want you to believe in Jesus and to see his glory and his beauty transform you even now. And so don't be surprised when difficult words come your way. But, but work to listen for the hope that's there as well because there is indeed hope there. Live as a church that is honest about suffering but is hopeful about eternity. Not only do we go to church because the gospel is true, the second thing I want you to see, and we're going to look, see this in verses 2 through 4, the, the main chunk of this passage, we also go to church because God created church for our good. Again, as I said earlier, I get this because he's talking to elders. Earlier in First Peter, he's actually, he talks to husbands and wives, and he talks to servants and masters. He's, that's what, what ancient writers call household codes. But here he expands his vision to talk about life in the church together. So he's talking largely about life in the church. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to understand God's intention for the church as a whole. I said earlier that, that the, the first Peter's a letter, and it's written to actually five ch- churches in five different regions. And the idea is that they would have passed this letter along and read it out loud in their re- regular worship gathering, as it, such as it was in the first century. But what's fascinating is first Peter is not a letter written to elders behind closed doors. This would have been read out loud to the congregation as a whole. So there are elders in the room, and there's everybody else in the room too. And so he's doing far more than saying, okay, guys, I'm going to tell you the secret to doing your job, but don't tell the congregation because they can't know because it'll mess everything up. What he's actually doing is he's casting a vision for what life together would look like, and he's doing it by describing what the leadership will look like in, the, in that community. And I want you to see several things. First of all, he, what he highlights for us, the big picture that I want you to see is that he highlights that we are a people of need. One of the beauties of working at an ag school is that I get to learn about animal husbandry, which I know nothing about, and I've had some fascinating conversations, some of which I don't really want to talk about in public at the moment. But one of the things I learned recently was that sheep, when, when, when a female sheep, which I think is called a ewe, when she lambs or has a baby sheep, a lamb, that they have to build a pen for this, the mama sheep and the baby sheep to be in the same, really close together. Because if you don't do that, is what my student told me, the mama sheep will wander away and forget about her baby. And the baby will flounder and probably die because there's no nutrients. It, that it's not natural for the sheep to, to stick around, to stick near her baby. Other animals do this okay, sheep not so much. And so when, when the sheep is giving birth, they, they put mama and the new baby in a, in a little pen so that the baby can find mama quickly and mama doesn't just wander off in nutrients. That's how needy we are. We need some sort of structure to help us figure out what growth, what growth and health looks like. Look at, the, look at the text with me. Look at verse 2. Where does he go next? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's not accidental that he uses the word shepherd. It shows up throughout Scripture to speak of human leadership, to speak of God. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in John 10, when Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. All of that is behind this word. But notice what he says next. He says, exercising oversight. Oversight here speaks of, of, yes, a place of authority, but as well a place of care. That there would be people looking out for us, 
calling us to live differently, calling us to face our sin and face our need, but who are there to care for us. Notice where he goes next again in, in, chapter, in verse 2. He says, uh, in verse 3, I'm sorry, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's, I'm sorry, my notes are wrong. That's still verse 2. But eagerly. You see what he's telling the, the people? He, he's saying, your, 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 your elders are to be wholeheartedly engaged with this care for you. It's, it's, it's too big of a thing to be taken lightly. The idea is that they would be willing and eager and available, caring wholeheartedly for the people that God has given them. We need that kind of care and attention and protection even. But notice where he goes then in verse 3. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not only do we need care and protection, we, we also need an example. Because let's be honest, our world is complex enough that it's not always obvious what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. It's not always obvious. And so we need examples. We need people ahead of us. We don't need someone yelling at us from a distance telling us how we're messing up. And that's not the job of your leadership. We need an example. We need a picture of following Jesus. But look at verse 4, what he adds to this picture. He says in verse 4, he says, and when the good, again, speaking specifically to the elders in the midst of everybody hearing, he says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, part of what he's saying to elders, leaders of the church is, it's going to be worth it because Jesus is worth it, because Jesus is on his throne. And as you labor for a people, it's going to be difficult, and you won't always know what to do but persist because their glory awaits you. But in that, it's not but, in that idea, there's something else that I want you to see. Because what he's saying here is we need, to, we, need, we need care and protection, we need an example, but we also need to know that perfect isn't here yet. He says we're awaiting this unfading crown of glory that will come in the future when Jesus comes back, when the glory is revealed. And what he's saying to us is this is a promise to live knowing that one day the work will be done and the world will be set aright. I want to say to your, el- to, to your elders, don't try to be perfect because you won't be. You will fail 10 times out of 10. And to you as a congregation, I want to say, please be aware of your propensity to expect perfection from those men. They will not be perfect. They may at times be awkward. They may say, may say things that are hurtful. But they are committed to you. And I'm, I'm not saying they won't make mistakes. They will make mistakes. And yet this is a call together as God's people to look forward and say, even in our imperfection, we are seeking Jesus together. And let's let that be what we do together. We need this, and God has created this for us. Early in my marriage, um, when my wife and I were still living in St. Louis, I, I have a memory of sitting in my driveway with a Camry, 19-something or other, 1990-something Camry that didn't work, and I had my Haynes manual, if some of you remember what a Haynes manual was that I'd, that I'd somehow procured, and I was leafing through it trying to figure out how to make my car work. And I knew, I know even, I knew even less then than I know now about how cars work. And I was lost. The Haynes Manual is a great manual. There's, it's fully detailed pictures, schematics, everything you need to know about the car, the specific car, but it wasn't enough. So I called my father-in-law, 
who shows up with a good friend of his who worked on cars professionally for most of his adult life. And we opened up the hood. And he said, what's going on? And he had me sit in the car and started. And he began to test and try, try things that he thought might be. And it took a while. It wasn't, it wasn't a quick fix. But eventually the car was running again. You see, I needed that. I needed the example. I needed somebody in flesh and blood there because my knowledge, I was not enough of my own to fix it. And he shows up, and, and, it, and it didn't happen right away. It wasn't magical, but it actually happened. And that's what we're given in each other. Beloved of God, let church be a place where you look to your leadership, not as those who are the, the, the great personalities, as, as the ones who are celebrities and going to be famous, and you'll associate yourself with that. Let church be the place where you can be known and prayed for and led. Let it be a place where you can see others helping you understand what it looks like to grow and to learn. Let let church be a place where you know you're not perfect, where you know you will fail one another, where you know that you need correction. You need this. We need this. I need this. And God says, I'm giving you this for your good. There's one more thing I want you to see, and it's what we see in the rest of verse 5. We go to church because the gospel is true. We go to church because it's been created for our good. And we go to church because God wants us to know him. Look at verse 5 with me. In the second part, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So it's as if, if Peter is stepping back and saying, Okay, I've talked to the elders and I've talked to everybody else. Everybody listen up. Clothe yourselves with humility. And he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 to make his point. And the two things that he wants us to see here is that the path toward God is humility and that the path away from God is rooted in pride. You see, humility is the call to see yourself before God, to honestly face your need, your weakness, and even your, your attitudes towards God himself. It is, it, is, it is the need that we have to see ourselves clearly and to see God for who he is and to know that he will oppose us if we're proudful, prideful. Why? Because pride is the path away from God. Pride is that thing that says, I don't need anybody else. I don't need the church. I don't need leadership. I'm good on my own. I got this figured out. That's what pride is. C.S. Lewis in his great book, Mere Christianity, if you've ever read that book, I'm guessing that the chapter on pride has stuck out to you because everybody else I've ever talked to who has read that says, yeah, that's the one. It's worth the price of the book for the, what it's worth. But Lewis writes this about pride. He says, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having something more, only having more of it than the next man. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. You see, in quoting that proverb, what Peter is saying is, it's, it's not simply that God is displeased with you when you're proud or frustrated with you. God is opposed to the proud. God becomes your enemy in your moment of pride. God gave us the church so that we might know him. So that we might live in such a way that we can't escape these realities. 
so that we can't escape that, that there is something greater than me out there in the world, that, there's, there, that there are other people who do things better than me. For us, to, for us to learn to face our feelings of jealousy and envy towards those around us who, who th- we think are either more wealthy than we or more, more talented or more gifted or more, more, more well-spoken, whatever it may be. We need to run into each other in such a way that we have to face who we are. And this is why we're here. And the purpose is not simply that we might know ourselves, but in knowing ourselves like this, we would fully know God more and more with each new day. Do you know yourself? Do you know your weaknesses? Do you know your frailties? Do you know your patterns of sin? Are there people in your life that you can ask, how do I sound? How do I sound in congregational meetings? How do I sound in Sunday school? How do I sound when I work in the nursery or when I talk to my kids? How, do you, not only do you know yourself, but do you know God? What's your view of God? What is your vision of Him? How do you see Him? What does it look like for you to face your humility or lack thereof and to honestly face your pride and to find God instead? We go to church because the gospel is true. We go to church because God created the church for our good. And we go to church because God wants us to know Him. That's what He's about. Returning back to Bonhoeffer for just a moment, he also, he wrote this. He said, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Rich Mullins, uh, you may know him, he was a Christian musician a number of years ago. He's been gone now for some time. But in one of his songs where he sings the Apostles' Creed, he writes this. He says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. This is the church. This picture of the church is this thing that, that what, what Peter is after is that it would shape us, that it would make us, because it's not the invention of any man. It's not this ideal that we come up with and we're going we're to perfect it. And if we just tweak these ten things, life is going to be awesome and we're not going to be frustrated anymore. No. When I said early on, Peter's calling us out of ourselves. He's challenging us to face these realities in our lives. To face that we treat church like another consumer opportunity. That, that we're all about having our needs served and not serving others and not seeing God. He's calling us to live outside of ourselves because the gospel is true. Because God created it for our good and because God wants us to know him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the truth of your word continue to shape us. Father, may the imperfection of life in, in this side of eternity be a place where we find grace. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Prepare the table for the Lord's Supper. Let's stand together and sing our hymn of response, Be Thou My Vision, verses 1 through 3.